All right, let's open with a, a word of prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that we get to look at your word today uh, to find your will for, for us as a church. We pray that you would work in our hearts today, convict us where necessary, build us up, and may we uh, fulfill the mission that you have commissioned for us. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, if you want to open your Bible, we're going to be looking at Genesis 12, 1 through 3, uh, here at the beginning, and several other passages as well. Like Titu said, we're in chapter 2 of what is the mission of the church. In chapter 1, we saw that mission is not everything we do in Jesus' name, nor is it everything we do in obedience to Christ. Mission, as we defined it, is the task that we are given to fulfill, and we're going to get to that eventually. But first, we're going to uh, look at a few passages that are sometimes uh, said to be expressing the mission of the church, and we're going to be looking at why those passages do not express the mission of the church, so that we can be clear about what we are here for exactly. Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is the first one we'll look at. And Christopher Wright, who is a writer on missiological things, says this is one of the most important places in a missiological reading of the Bible. Reggie McNeil, also, who's a proponent of this passage being a sort of a Great Commission passage, says uh, that this is simple but far-reaching covenant. The people of God are charged with the responsibility and enjoy the privilege to bless everyone. And that's... That's kind of their big thing in this passage is that they read it and they say that, well, Abraham was supposed to go and be a blessing, meaning that both of those are the ultimate purpose of God and the ultimate purpose of the church. So we are to go and we are to be a blessing. And there's nothing, really, there's nothing wrong with saying that we ought to be a blessing and we ought to. But when we make that the mission of the church, it introduces confusion as to what exactly we are supposed to be doing. When we look at the passage, let's just read the passage here before I get into it. And now the Lord said to Abraham, get out of your country from your family and from your father's house to a land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will curse, those, curse him who curses you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So they make a big point of this. You're supposed to go, that's a command, and you're supposed to bless. That's also a command, and that's true in the the Hebrew. Now, I'm not a Hebrew grammarian, so I'm kind of going off what they said in the book. But there's two imperatives put together in this passage. Go and be a blessing. And when two imperatives are put together, what that often means is the first one is the command, And the second one is the result of the first one being fulfilled. Do this, and this thing will happen. And that's exactly what we have in in Genesis 42, 18. Joseph says, do this, and you will live. Both the do this and the live, those are both verbs, and they're both in the imperative. So they're both taken as, they look like they're both commands. But the idea is obvious. If you do this thing that I'm commanding you, then you will live. Does that make sense? And so that's what we're reading here in Genesis 12 as well. 
However, even if the grammar were to point to two distinct commands, so even if what I just said is not true, and we have two commands, we would still have to, we would still say that to make go be a blessing, the mission of the church is going too far. What we see in Genesis is not Abraham developing a comprehensive plan to go and be a blessing to the Canaanites or to go and be a blessing to the Amalekites. What we see him doing is going and obeying God and sometimes disobeying God, right? And through it all, he is a blessing. He gets blessed, and the people around him who uh, support him are also blessed, just like it says uh, in, uh, in the Genesis 12 passage. It says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And we see that happening. Uh, God blesses Abraham and his family despite him. Uh, the people who bless Abraham are blessed, and the, the ones who curse him are cursed. We do not see Abraham going out and making it his mission to find people to be a blessing to them. He left Ur as he was commanded, and the blessing followed his obedience. Now, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that we should not be a blessing to the people around us. We certainly should be. And it doesn't mean that we should stop trying to be a blessing to the people around us. But it does mean that the mission of the church is not encapsulated in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Finally, if we look at what other places in the Bible have to say about Genesis 12, so when we look at what Scripture interprets Scripture uh, doing, we see that it also points to something other than just being a blessing, which is kind of a vague idea, unless you start defining, um, defining it by what the Bible says. Being a blessing could be all kinds of different things, right? In Galatians 3, 8 through 9, it says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, And you, all nations, shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. So if we are to understand the meaning of blessing through the eyes of scripture, interpreting itself, being a blessing does not merely mean to feed the poor, or to, to clothe the poor. According to Paul here in Galatians, referring back to this very passage, it means calling people to repentance and believing in Christ, to put their faith in Christ. The next passage we'll look at is Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Uh, if you want to turn there, you may. I think in my book group, we found this to be kind of an odd passage to refer to. Um, because I, I had never come across it as a, a passage as expressing the mission of the church. But uh, Christopher Wright again and, and Reggie McNeil, they both cite these passages in their works, and, and they, they claim that this expresses the, the mission of the church. The argument, well, let's read the passage, and then we'll, we'll see what they have to say about it. Uh, so Exodus 19, verse 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So the argument goes like this. God calls us to be a kingdom of priests. And what do priests do? Well, they mediate the presence of God to the people. So, therefore, what is our mission? 
then our mission is to mediate the presence of God to the world. Therefore, the mission of the church is to be a blessing to the world by mediating God's presence. Reggie McNeil says that God created a people to serve his ongoing incarnational presence on the earth. And Wright says, it is, it is this richly significant Excuse me. It is this richly significant that God confers on Israel as a whole people the role of being his priesthood in the midst of the nations. Just, it was, just as it was the role of the priests to bless the Israelites, so it would be the role of Israel as a whole ultimately to, bless, to be a blessing to the nations. And while this is attractive at a certain level, you know, the idea of we are to be a blessing to people and that's kind of our job and so let's just go out and do that. It doesn't really follow. This passage doesn't really actually teach that for at least five different reasons. The first one is the Levitical priesthood was a mediatorial role to placate God's anger toward sinners, not to incarnate his presence to the people. The second is the term kingdom of priests is better understood to be a holy people, not a people who are incarnating the presence of God. Thirdly, if God were giving Israel a missionary task, we would probably see instructions for it set forth somewhere in the Mosaic Law or somewhere in the Old Testament, but we don't actually see that. There's no explicit instructions ordering them to go and meet the needs of the people in the surrounding nations. Fourthly, Israel conquered the surrounding nations by military force. And if you think about it, that's kind of the opposite of being a blessing to the people around you. So go kill them is the opposite of, yeah. And then fifthly, uh, the prophets find all kind of fault with the people of Israel. You know, when you, you read through the Old Testament, the prophets, and you just feel like, man, is Israel doing anything right any, any of this time? And what you don't see is that, hey, you're, you're failing at your missionary mandate. We don't come across that. So for them to say that that is what this is teaching really doesn't follow with what the rest of Scripture says. We'll next look at Luke four sixteen through 21. And this, this is probably the... The more, the more cited uh, passage in terms of just the idea that we're supposed to be a blessing and that's, that's our job as a church. So he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is a commonly misunderstood passage. And the popular explanation is basically 
Christ didn't just come as a, media, as a Messiah, he came as a social liberator. And so they point to this passage as though it's teaching that. His, his ministry, they say, was especially for the poor. Therefore, we also should be especially focused on the poor, and we should be social liberators. We should infiltrate every corner of society and transform it with a special emphasis on helping the poor. And again, that all sounds very nice. That sounds like a good thing to do. And in part, it is something that we should be doing. In some way, shape, or form, Christians should be influencing society. Christians should be helping the downtrodden. But this approach misses what, it, what is actually being said in the text. We see the word proclaim in here numerous times. Proclaim liberty, proclaim good news, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. The one exception is to set at liberty the oppressed, and we'll come back to that in a moment. If this text sets the tone for the mission of the church, then it's telling us what to do, and that is to preach the gospel. Because most of what Jesus says here is about proclaiming, announcing, telling people things. The other problem that we have with this is the word poor here does not necessarily mean simply people who don't have much money. Right? It can mean brokenhearted, as in Isaiah. It can mean afflicted. It can mean those who mourn. It can mean those who are meek. Throughout the New Testament, the word can be taken literally, as in someone who actually is monetarily poor, or figuratively, as in spiritually poor. In short, poor doesn't always mean just monetarily poor. And so this passage doesn't make the case it might appear to be making at first glance. But David Bosch comments on the passage, and he puts it well. He says, Therefore, in Luke's gospel, the rich are tested on the ground of their wealth, whereas others are tested on loyalty toward their family, their people, their culture, and their work. This means the poor sinners are like everyone else because ultimately sinfulness is rooted in the human heart. Just as the material, materially rich can be spiritually poor, the materially poor can be spiritually poor. So poor is better to be understood as those who see their need for a savior. Any questions about these three passages we've covered so far? Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You're welcome. Okay, so let's, let's actually turn our attention now to the Great Commission. And Oh, sorry, was there? Yeah. yeah. Nick, uh, when you said the spiritually poor may be spiritually poor, did you mean the spiritually poor may be materially poor? When you just said it. Did I misspeak? Just as the materially rich can be spiritually poor, the materially poor can also be spiritually poor. So in other words, to put it in simpler terms, everyone can be spiritually poor. <laughs> yeah? The, the re- repetition of the word proclaim, proclaim proclamation, yeah. that's, that's pretty hard to set aside. Is there a counter-argument when that's presented? Um, what they what uh, Wright and uh, McNeil say, and other writers say, where this is this is not just announcing something; it's actually going and doing something about it. But that's not what the word means. 
And that's also not what we see Jesus doing. He didn't have a plan. He didn't have a uh, society transformation plan so that everyone who's poor gets rich and the rich get poor, right? We didn't, when we look at the book of Acts, we don't see the apostles going out and making sure that everybody who's poor is fed, right? I mean, that's part of what the church does. They do those things. We, they appoint to deacons so that people could be provided for, and we do the same thing here. But that was not the, the mission of the church. That is not what Jesus went out in order to do. And we'll talk about that as well. Does that answer your question? Okay. So uh, let's turn to the Great Commission passages. So why, why do we focus on the so-called Great Commission passages? I mean, after all, isn't the whole Bible about God's mission? Well, there's, there are several good reasons to focus on these particular passages. First, even if the Bible is essentially a book about God's mission, which it is, we still have to know what are we supposed to do. So what is our job? Some argue that whatever God does in the world, we should also do in the world. And that sounds nice, but what if we aren't supposed to do the things that God does in the world? For instance, Christ died for sinners. Are we supposed to do that? I don't think so. We're not equipped to do that, and God forbid that think, we think that we are equipped to do that. It's not everything that God does is something that we are supposed to do. Second, it makes sense that we would look to the New Testament more than the Old Testament to, see, to find a, a theology of missions. The Old Testament is more concerned with the nation of Israel than with any other nation, and the New Testament is the one that shows us how God's people will be a blessing to the world by taking the gospel to them. There are no models for mission work in the Old Testament. Only in the New Testament, particularly the book of Acts, do we find a model or an example of mission work. Uh, third, it makes sense that we would look to Jesus for our missiological directive. When Jesus was baptized, what did God say? This is my son, and my beloved son, hear him. Or this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. Fourthly, the placement of the Great Commission suggests their strategic importance, right? These are some of the last words that Christ said to his people. And usually someone's last words are important. At least they think they're important. And so when we look at the last things that Jesus is teaching his, his, his disciples, they, are, they carry some weight with them, right? So let's look at these passages. First, we'll look at Matthew 28, 16 through 20. Probably the most famous Great Commission passage. It reads, Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
So it's interesting the disciples at this point, they were brought to a mountain for this message. And can you think of some other events that happened on mountains? Anyone? The giving of the law, the transfiguration, right? Uh, The Sermon on the Mount. So it seems like important things happen on mountains in the scriptures. So there's something significant going on here. And Jesus tells them, you know, he kind of sets the stage for this. He tells them, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he gives them their final instructions. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and so on. And then he promises, after he gives them this direction, he promises that he's going to be with them to the very end of the age. So that's, that's one of the Great Commission passages. The next one I'll talk about is Mark. Now in the book, uh, I know there was some confusion in at least one of the groups about this, and I had people asking me about the ending of Mark. Um, I personally believe the ending of Mark, the so-called longer ending of Mark, is genuine, so I actually will cite those passages. Um, If you want to ask me about that later, I'd be happy to talk to you. But in the book, they talk about uh, Mark 13.10. says, And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And then in Mark 14.9, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So there's a couple passages throughout the book that talk about this gospel going forth. And, you know, if you're reading it carefully, you would raise the question in your mind, well, how is it going to go into all the world? So at the end of Mark, uh, Mark 16, 15, Jesus says, and he said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So we have a great commission passage there. And interestingly, in verse 20, it actually shows us what the result of that was. It says, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. The next Great Commission passage is in Luke 24, 44 through 49. If you want to turn there. That's at the end of Luke. So this reads, uh, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endowed with power from on high. So the disciples are told that they are going to be witnesses and that they are going to bear witness of Christ in all nations. And there's, there's a bit more of an explicit reference to preaching repentance and forgiveness of sins in this. But again, just to reiterate, we see this idea that the last kind of command that Christ gives his people here is go out into all the world, preach the gospel. As he's saying, that's your job. That's what what you're going to focus on. That's your primary purpose here. 
Now we're going to move into Acts right now because Luke wrote Luke, and he also wrote Acts. And this is the account of Jesus' last words in Acts 1.8. He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And those are the last words that Christ speaks to his disciples. And then they stand there, and they watch him ascend, and then they just stand there, and then they have to be told, okay, you can go do other things now. You know, it doesn't stop staring into the clouds. But it's important we see this, the scope and the nature of the earliest Christian mission in the book of Acts. It was not a society renewal program. It was not caring for the planet. It wasn't strategies to just be a blessing to people around them in some material sense. We see the gospel being preached. Immediately, the gospel is being preached. We see a church that has formed, that's devoted to fellowship with each other. They're devoted to breaking bread, to prayer, to the the apostles' teaching, and to sharing with each other, to helping one another. Uh, Daryl Bach says this, the commission describes the church's key assignment of what to do until the Lord returns. The priority for the church until Jesus returns, a mission of which the community must never lose sight, is to witness to Jesus to the end of the earth. The church exists in major part to extend the apostolic witness to Jesus. Everywhere. Even just a cursory glance, uh, even a careless reading of Acts shows this to be the case, right? Immediately the apostles go out and preach and people start getting saved. In Acts 6, there's so much going on. There's, there's so many people in the church that the, the apostles decide, okay, we really can't meet all of these needs. And so we, they decided to appoint deacons to take care of the physical needs of the church. Why? So that they could remain focused on preaching and prayer. Later, the gospel spreads to the surrounding regions. Churches are planted. Elders are appointed in those churches, and the word continues to run forth and flourish. And the book ends uh, as it started with, Paul, with, uh, with preaching happening, right? We see the apostles were preaching at the beginning of the book of Acts, and at the end we have Paul preaching in Rome. So we saw that when Jesus said, you're going to be witnesses starting at Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria to the ends of the world, well, like Rome was like the ends of the world at that point, right? And so we see the fulfillment of what Jesus commissioned them to do, in part, even at the end of the book of Acts. Let's turn back to John 20, 21. This is the shortest of the Great Commission passages. And interestingly enough, maybe the most controversial one. So John 20, 21. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also sent you. So for the sake of time, I'm only going to discuss the issue of Jesus' mission as a model. As this, is, this is probably the controversial point. When Jesus says, As I have been sent, so I send you. Uh, the question is, so this is a model for our own in some ways. And the question is, in what ways? 
there's two answers given. The first one is incarnationally, meaning he's continuing his presence here on earth. And then the second is by empowering us to witness to all he has taught and accomplished. And I bet you can guess which one I'm going to say is the right one. So certainly there's incarnational aspects to our work, but for our mission to simply be incarnational means, to quote John Stott, our mission like his is to be one of service. And quote, we are sent into the world like Jesus to serve. However, to make serving the absolute number one priority for the church is actually misleading. One author recently claimed, quote, every moment in his ministry Jesus' ministry, was spent with the poor, sick, helpless, and hurting. So the, the, the point is that he's always, literally says at every single point in his ministry, he was with these people, the poor, the sick, the helpless, and the hurting. But that's just not true. Sometimes Jesus was alone. He would go up on a mountain by himself to pray. Sometimes he was with rich people. Sometimes... He was being served by other people. He did not come to serve, but to serve. But sometimes he was being served. And service is a good thing. We ought to be diligent in doing good. We ought to be, you know, we ought to uh, volunteer at the rescue mission. We ought to be here at the church helping people. We ought to be in each other's homes helping people and serving people. But Jesus' mission was not to heal the sick and to feed the poor. It was to save sinners from their sins. The healing of the sick and the miraculous feeding of the crowds and all of his miracles was just a testimony that who he said he was was true. That was the purpose. And why is that important? Because he was there to save people from their sins and they needed to believe that what he was saying was true. And remember that there were certain towns he'd go to and he could not perform miracles there because the people lacked faith. So don't miss the point. Jesus never went into a city with the express purpose of healing people. He didn't go there just to cast out demons, right? Secondly, it's unwise to assume that because we are sent as Jesus was sent, that we have the exact same mission that he had, and we already mentioned that. We can't do the things that Christ did. Our role is not to do the things he did, It's to do the things he told us to do, specifically bearing witness to him, to who Christ is. We are not reincarnate copies of Jesus. We are representatives of him in this world. Does this all make sense? Are there any questions? Jerry says it all makes sense, so there's no questions. Doug. Um, Did I hear you say a little bit ago that there's no model in the Old Testament Yes, of missions, missions, of missionary endeavors. Okay, so you didn't mean the mission church. No, I didn't mean that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But the New Testament gives us explicitly what the mission of the church is. Right. And Jesus connects that in Matthew 21 to Isaiah 56. Yes. My house will be a house of prayer. Yeah. Yeah. So there's certainly passage in the Old Testament we look to where we see that Israel is not the only nation that's going to come to know the gospel, right? But we have these explicit instructions. We have the whole book of Acts, which shows us how this is working, what we're supposed to do. 
So that's why we look at the New Testament for what is the mission of the church rather than looking more at the Old Testament, right? So uh, with all of what we've discussed, we can summarize the mission of the church finally after two chapters. We can actually define what the mission of the church is. And we can do this by answering seven questions. First, who? Who is supposed to do this? The disciples who received the Great Commission and all those who follow in the same faith. Why are we supposed to do this? Well, because Christ commanded us to do it. That's why. What are we supposed to do? The answer is preaching and teaching, proclaiming the good news, testifying, making disciples, bearing witness. Where are we supposed to do this? All over the world. Or to bring it home to you personally, wherever you are. Wherever you are, wherever you go, that's where you're supposed to proclaim the gospel. The command is go and tell. It's not get people to come so that they can see it, is to go and tell, right? Go and preach the good news. How do we do this? By the power of the Holy Spirit working in us. When do we do this? Until Jesus returns. So right now, until the end of the age. And to who do we go? Who do we preach this good news to? Everyone. Everyone indiscriminately. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. We don't know who's going to respond. We don't know when God is going to work in someone's heart to change them, but we're supposed to go and proclaim it to every nation, whether we see fruit or whether we don't see any fruit. I know there's missionaries who have gone to countries and they've labored there for 20 years without seeing, before they saw their first convert. But all those people need to hear the gospel, right? So I'm just going to look at one more example of this in the New Testament because it would be remiss of us to not look at the, the Apostle Paul, right? Perhaps with almost certainty the greatest uh, missionary ever. Uh, so let's look at his commission in Acts 26, if you want to turn there. Acts 26 16 through 18. So this is when Christ appears to him. Uh, starting in verse 16. It says, But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both of, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul's whole life was completely changed at this point, right? He's on his way to persecute the church, and now suddenly he's being sent to proclaim the gospel. His life was one of evangelism, it was one of making disciples, planning churches, uh, appointing elders. And some argue, however, that Paul's word-based ministry was not what he expected other people to be doing. But this simply is not the case. Uh, for instance, we have examples of these. So Paul went and he planted these churches, 
And for instance, at Thessalonica, Paul says that the word was at work in them, running, ringing, and sounding forth. So that sounds like Paul was not the only one who was preaching the gospel. The people at Thessalonica were doing the same things that he had come to do for them. In Philippians, Paul seems to expect that the gospel will be proclaimed in every way in that church. So the the ordinary people who were at that church, they were going to be the ones who were proclaiming the gospel. In Ephesians 6, we have the armor of God, this description, and one of the pieces of armor is the shoes of the armor. And what does that do? It prepares them to proclaim the gospel. That passage is not talking to pastors or elders only. This is talking to all of us in the room. And there's other passages in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Titus that express these same things. So Paul received this commission, and he planted these churches, and that commission was passed on to those churches as well. Now, that does, does not mean that everyone's going to be a missionary, right? Not everyone's going to go into a foreign land to proclaim the gospel and plant churches, but you're a missionary in your neighborhood and at work and at your school and at whatever, your bowling league and your underwater basket weaving class. You know, everywhere you go, you are in one sense a missionary. You are to proclaim the gospel to the people around you. So with all that covered, we can now give a concise answer to the question of this book, what is the mission of the church? The mission of the church is to go into all the world and make disciples by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit and furthering these disciples, fathering these disciples into churches that they might worship the Lord and obey his commands now and in eternity to the glory of God the Father. That's a John Owen type of sentence, right? A bit long. But we can, we can make it even more concise than this. Jesus told his disciples to win people to Christ and build them up. The mission of the church is to preach the gospel and make disciples out of them. Any questions? Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you that we are able to read it, to study it. Uh, We pray that you would help us love it more. Uh, We pray that you would take to heart the things that we've learned today, that we would uh, make it our mission uh, as individuals to proclaim the gospel to the people around us, the people at work, uh, the people in in our social circles, to our, our children at home. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us the boldness and uh, the confidence to do so, knowing that uh, this is our mission. We ask your blessing on the rest of our day of worship, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.